Excuse me. So, Jesus is born, and he is the firstborn male. And Luke kind of hints at it. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. But the, uh, there, there's a law, a rule, in what we would call Torah, which is often translated as God's law. I think teaching is maybe a little bit better. Uh, God's teaching that if you have a firstborn male, that firstborn male belongs to God. Now, this is where it gets a little heavy, I guess, because that's actually a reference, kind of a veiled, maybe vague reference to sacrifice. Uh, God is not, of course, saying sacrifice your firstborn male, thankfully, because I am the firstborn male of my family. Uh, and so is my son, but I guess if I was sacrificed, then he, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, but, and, and Torah says that since he belongs to God, you will need to offer something back to God. And, and that sounds, again, very kind of brutal and um, uh, maybe even primitive, but it was just, a, it was a very nominal sum. And the point was not so that everyone kind of knows what could have happened, but actually in Torah it says that it, when you go and redeem or buy back your son, you will remember that you, your ancestors, were slaves in Egypt and God rescued you through his prophet Moses. It's a way of remembering who God is, who you are, and what God has done for you in the past. It's an act of faith. Uh, kind of, maybe vaguely similar to the fact that there will be a whole bunch of people tonight, roughly around midnight, who will decide to set off small but shockingly dangerous bombs to remind themselves that 2023 is now gone. It's not a perfect analogy, but maybe you, you get the gist. So Joseph and Mary go into the temple area. Uh, the temple being the place of where God's presence is supposed to be. Now I say supposed to because in this era of the temple, it was never described. And you can see this in intertestamental and rabbinic, Tanaitic literature, blah, 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 a bunch of nerdy words, that God's presence wasn't really there. It, it, it's never described as being there. There's this kind of odd vacuum. But there's also a very deep level of irony here because Christians, especially among that, that first and second generation of followers of Jesus, will very quickly and quite correctly identify Jesus as the true temple. Because if the temple is supposed to be the place where God dwells, where God is present, and Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God present here, then he is by definition the temple. So you have little baby temple, shall we say, entering into the place that is designed to point to him. There's a, there's a level of irony here. and We're going to see in this section that there's a lot going on because that's just the tip of the iceberg. So they're there. They, they do their thing. Um, they offer birds 
for Mary's purification because giving birth is a total bloodbath and that makes you ritually unclean and you need to kind of go through a process to take care of that. Again, according to Torah, um, uh, we can learn that Jesus' parents were not wealthy. They were probably kind of poor because that's what they offered. And then at some point in that process, we encounter a guy named Simeon. Uh, Simeon is, a, I think, kind of a weird character. He just shows up very briefly and then vanishes from the story. And the only thing that Luke tells us about Simeon is that it had, he, he was a very faithful follower of God, spent all of his time in the temple worshiping God, and then it had been revealed to him that he will not die before he sees the coming of the Messiah, the one that his people have been waiting for for really countless generations, the one who's supposed to in some way vindicate Israel to bring God's people into that place where they were always meant to be, um, kind of like fulfilling all things. Now, no one really agreed on what all things meant, but we all knew that he was going to do that. Now, uh, I guess maybe it's because I'm cynical or just maybe slightly a contrarian. If God says, hey, you're not going to die until you see um, the Messiah, and you know, very clearly the Messiah is most obviously going to be visible in Jerusalem or in the temple, I'm going to be thinking, I hear Spain is nice this time of year. <laughs> Let's, let's see how long we can drag this out. <laughs> There's good wine in Spain, too. So, uh, obviously, Simeon doesn't do that. Now, Simeon is very mysterious. Uh, in, in his name, Simeon or Simon, it's really the same name. The Semitic pronunciation would be Shimon, is the most popular name in this region around this time. Uh, but... His kind of general respect and the fact that Luke brings up Simeon uh, in, in kind of a vague suggestion that maybe his readers would have been kind of aware that he existed or that he was there. Uh, maybe his reputation kind of continued after his death or something like that gives us a, a, a hint, a suggestion, maybe a possibility um, that we can actually figure out who this Shimon, Simeon, actually was. Again, this is not a slam dunk. This is just a possibility, um, and, I, and I think a reasonable possibility. Uh, Simeon actually shows up in, in what's called Tanaitic literature. So kind of the, the writings of the sages and rabbis or, or those... Um, codified oral tradition that happens a little bit after Jesus. And if that is him, uh, then he's actually the father of what we would say is probably the greatest rabbi in the history of Judaism. Uh, his name would be Hillel the Great. Uh, Jesus, by the way, as he goes and starts teaching, you know, many years from the moment that we're observing right now, uh, will actually kind of sound like Hillel in certain ways. Now, does that mean anything? I don't know. Does it uh, change the way the story unfolds? Probably not. 
But it is, again, interesting and I think important that when, we, when these characters pop up, we're not talking about a novel. We're talking about flesh hitting dust. Uh, th- these are real people with real stories. So anyway, this guy who apparently has a stellar reputation and is known for being a very holy, faithful man comes up and then things get even weirder. So again, in the backs of your mind, Realize that this guy sees this, this child whom he, something in his spirit, and it's probably the Holy Spirit says, that's it. That's the one you've been waiting for. He is now here. Imagine the mix of emotions. Like you finally see, like, hope in flesh. There he is. And at the same time, also, there's that sort of uncomfortable sense in the backs of your minds where you realize my time here is over that's it i'm going to die soon um i would burst into tears probably but simeon comes up and by the spirit begins to prophesy he identifies who this little baby is And he says that this is it. He will be a light to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. That is the culmination. That was the point of God calling way back when Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Because Abraham, or through Abraham, he starts a family. And that family will bear his presence and his name to all the world. That was the intention. Their story is full of failure and frustration, but now it's here. This is going to be the guy who actually does it. This is a very big moment. Now, think, think about this from another perspective. Let's think about all the people who are there in this moment. You have Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are keenly aware that this child is special. Not special in the sense that we all think our children are special, but like his conception was weird, shall we say. (laughs) Um, And so they know he's different. And then you have this old guy, this essentially prophet uh, who comes up and, and starts making very big claims about your son. They haven't had that much time to really process what God is doing in this moment. And so things, I would think, probably don't make a ton of sense yet. See, when, when Jesus was born and they're, they're, uh, they're kind of hanging out um, in like this guest room, that's really what Luke says, it's not a stable, I will die on that hill. Um, <laughs> bring it on. Um, <laughs> Uh, if it goes to, bo- goes to blows, even better. I'm prepared for that one. Um, <clears throat> when you have uh, the army of angels showing up to the shepherds saying, glory to God in the highest, and guess what? Big things have happened and the shepherds come. Luke, is, it's subtle, but it's there. Uh, Mary especially is just described as, as pondering these things, which uh, I take to mean just going, oh, what is happening? What is going on here? And I think that's the proper feeling for this moment. What is going on here? 
Now add that to just the trauma of giving birth and then the trauma of figuring out how to live uh, you know, with, with your life turned upside down because here's a child who demands absolutely everything and, you, and the orientation of your life just totally changes. That's a lot to process. And that takes time. Now add back in this prophet who makes some very big claims about this child and then he ups the ante again. He turns to Mary and says, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, fun fact, that section is actually very difficult to translate. It's not really clear among the best and brightest of the New Testament nerds what he means. We don't know exactly. It, it, we, we, we can get the tenor of it. We can get the feel of it. That, hey Mary, this is going to get complicated. And this is, what he accomplishes is going to be huge. And we of course know this is going to change the world. This is going to change everything. This is going to change who we are as human beings. And also Mary... Buckle up. Now we do know, of course, how the rest of that story goes, that whatever he means by a sword piercing her own soul and, and the rise and fall of many, we do know that, of course, Mary was there for her son's execution. And, and I truly cannot understand or cannot con- think of a worse fate. Um, New Testament interpreters tend to default there that that's what he means, but it's not, a hundred, it's not a slam dunk. But he's saying to Mary, this is big. I hope you're ready for it. Then another woman who is, is in a lot of ways very parallel, very similar to, to Simeon, um, shows up and kind of sees the same thing. Um, and then... Mary and Joseph, of course, marvel at this. Uh, marvel, thalmazo in Greek, um, can, can include like a tinge, not of doubt, though it can actually also mean doubt, of, but, but just the weight of it all. Like, wow, this is a really big thing. Wow, this is complicated. This is potentially deeply unsettling. This, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is really hard. This is good, but it's difficult. What do we do here? Um, now Luke tends to jump ahead here because we know that, that at some point after this they return back to Bethlehem. And this is when Herod the Great, who's king of the Jews at the time, uh, will actually send, dispatch a group of soldiers to try and kill Jesus. But warned uh, beforehand, they escape down to Egypt as refugees. Um, and then eventually, they make their way back to Nazareth. That's really messy. There's a lot happening in this moment. Uh, we, we tend to, and, and again, like, 
nothing against the artists uh, here. But you, you can see even in this art, and, and by coincidence, Phil is the brilliance behind picking these things out. Uh, this is great because you see Mary just all holy. You really think she was like that? I'd be a mess. Uh, I mean, I'd be, like, if, if, if I were in that because I was Joseph for some strange reason, I'd be in the corner, just fetal position going, what is God doing? Um, Mary and Joseph's life's potentially in danger. Jesus' life will be in danger very shortly. Um, and so that creates a whole whole problem of them having to flee from from mortal danger quite literally Simeon is there excited for what God is doing but he also knows that his death now is imminent Um, and then they receive the warning from Simeon that this is you're in for a bumpy ride what a mess And what I find fascinating and actually quite helpful is that God seemingly has no interest in pulling a family that he has chosen, and in fact a family that he has created, out of that mess. He doesn't seem all that interested in making things easier for them. That doesn't mean he's not with them. But by the way that their lives and his plan is going to shake out, there are many messes that they are simply going to have to endure. And it's not like things necessarily get easier when they get back to Nazareth. We have a a very brief uh, window of things that happened when Jesus was around 12. Joseph is still alive at that point. It's my pet theory that he actually dies shortly after. But he drops out of the story too. And it's, he, he dies at some point after that. Mary becomes a widow. Um, and then as Jesus' career blossoms and unfolds, he is going to kick the wrong, or actually quite the right hornet's nest. And he's eventually going to pay the price for it. And she will witness that. Again, multiple messes that God seemingly has no interest in pulling her out of. And so if God has no interest in pulling the holy family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph themselves, it sounds like I'm an Irish person who's swearing, but (laughs) if God has no interest in pulling Jesus, Mary, and Joseph from these messes, why would he do the same for us? Why would he do that for us? Because the way of Jesus is not a way of escape. Uh, we do believe like when we die in, in some really hard to describe way, we are in heaven or, or really we're, we're resting with Jesus. But if you look at the grand narrative arc of the Bible, which is kind of oddly coherent, it ends not with us, everyone kind of vanishing up to heaven, but actually with heaven coming down to earth. We celebrate Christmas because it's the 
first major taste in countless centuries or many centuries of heaven coming to earth in the form of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't then float all over the place and just be God. In fact, he gets his hands dirty. And he engages in the mess. And what God starts to reveal through Jesus, even though there's plenty of suggestion that this was happening even throughout the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, is that what God actually possesses is this infinite capacity to redeem the mess. Yeah, Mary's life got complicated fast. Yeah, there's this warning uh, prophecy, whatever you want to call it, that sh- her heart is going to be crushed because of what God has planned. And what they seem to possess is this unwavering faith that in spite of the mess, in spite of the challenge, God can redeem anything. First and foremost, the most pure picture of this redemption is that in Jesus, God is going to redeem death and the, and the, the penalty of our own sin, our inner destruction, our tendency to alienate ourselves from, our, from ourselves, from each other, from uh, what it even means to be human, which then creates this massive chasm between us and God, that, that God is actually going to bridge that chasm by the death of his own son and then use that to defeat death itself. That, that is the biggest picture of redemption in all of human history. And embedded in that promise is that we as followers of Jesus, buried with Jesus in our baptism, raised to walk in that new resurrection life, that God can redeem all suffering. Does that mean that God is going to redeem that suffering in a way that I would choose? Absolutely not. My personal history would suggest that he often chooses not to. (laughs) Um, Does that mean that we will see the full narrative arc of our lives as one that is of redemption? Maybe not. I I know several people who have gone to their graves hoping and waiting But in a really hard to understand way, if we truly buy into what the death and resurrection of Jesus means on a cosmic scale, it means that at some point, sometime on that last day at the resurrection and renewal of all things, we'll look back and go, oh, of course. But it also means that God is interested in in us engaging in that mess. It's kind of a cheap shot on my part, um, but, I, but I will say that the, the most important redemptive activity that God has done in my life, apart from the redemptive work of Jesus saving me from my sins, was almost dying of leukemia. Um, I would not have chosen that. I still don't want it. I still test positive for it. It's frustrating. 
But in enduring that mess, for especially those early years, God taught me so much more about what it means to be a pastor, about what it means to meet people in suffering than I ever could have learned from a book or from a series of conversations. Or really, it would have taken a long time even of just life experience to kind of put all of that in there. Would I have done it like that? Heck no. (laughs) I had to catch myself there. Wow. and, and honestly, like, that's, that's just a part of my story. There are plenty of other things that I, I'm kind of private about. But God, God redeems even those moments to further the work of Jesus. Now, what does that look like for you? I have no idea. I do not know all of the messes that you, are, you find yourselves in. I know, I know some of them, um, more than I did a year ago. But if we take the way of Jesus seriously, it is a promise that in Jesus, the messes you find yourself in will be redeemed. And I think as much as anything, you will find it most helpful when you let go of what you think that should look like. Instead of trying to control the things you can't control, recognize that, in, that, that if God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise this moment and restore it and, and, and redeem it in some way. And if now is not that time, then I have no control over it, and so God, it is in your hands.